All right, if you have a Bible, I'd like you to find Hebrews chapter 5. If you have a bulletin, you can take your notes out. That'll give you a road map of what we're going to talk about this morning. This is our fifth week in the book of Hebrews. This is the fifth time I've shared this statement with you. It's going to become familiar before the summer's over. The book of Hebrews was written really with two coordinating purposes in mind. A negative purpose, the book of Hebrews was written to warn Christians about the danger of following, or excuse me, of falling away. Positively, the book of Hebrews written to encourage Christians to persevere in the faith. And these two ideas, I've given you a reference in chapter 2 and a reference in chapter 13. They just show up all the way through the book, every chapter, over and over and over again. Don't fall away. Don't quit. Don't stop following Jesus. Keep trusting. Keep believing. Hang in there. Don't give up on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And this theme runs all the way through the book. Our passage is chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 begins to explain the concept of Jesus being our high priest. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you may be saying, yeah, we've been talking about that. We've been making reference to that. It's just sort of showed up in the text a few times. Chapter 5 is the place where the author of Hebrews really begins to explain the significance of what he means when he says Jesus is our great high priest. So I just want you to see these other references. There's been three in the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 17. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, you could circle that word high priest, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You could draw a line down to chapter 3, verse 1, that says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So there's a second reference. You could look over at chapter 4, verse 14, that says, since we have a great high priest, that's the third reference, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Our passage is chapter 5, and the author of Hebrews is going to explain what does it actually mean? Why do we need to rejoice and be glad and celebrate that we have a great high priest whose name is Jesus? That's the focus of our passage. I want to mention one thing in passing. And we're going to come back to it, right? I try to do this in this Hebrew series so you don't think we're going to skip over things that you really want to know about. When we get to Hebrew 6 next week, we're going to talk about this issue of falling away. Can you fall away? Can you not fall away? What do you mean? He's warning people. Is that a real possibility that you can lose your salvation? We're going to talk about that next week. I also want to mention Melchizedek. He shows up in this chapter. Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, they reference this guy named Melchizedek. He's a mysterious priest king. He's only mentioned twice in the Bible outside of Hebrews. He's mentioned in the book of Genesis. He's mentioned once in the book of Psalms in almost a passing reference, it seems. And then he shows up and he plays a pretty big role in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, especially 7. And so this morning, we're going to talk about Melchizedek briefly, but I'm not going to try to answer all your questions. We're not going to dig into who he is and all the theories and all the debate. We're going to get to some of that stuff later. I just want to acknowledge that he's mentioned here in our passage. The big idea is abundantly clear. Hebrews chapter 5, Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to serve as our high priest. 
He is uniquely qualified to serve as our high priest. That's the big idea of this passage. And what I'd like us to do is read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll try to make sense of what the Scripture says. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would be our our vision. You would be what we chase after. You would be what we seek after. You would be what we desire. And Father, as we gather together, we gather as sinners. Father, we know that you're a holy God. We've sung about that this morning. You are holy, holy, holy. And we know that the only way we can have a relationship with you, the only way we can rejoice in your presence is through Jesus, our great high priest. And this morning, as we look at this passage of Scripture, there are things that are challenging to wrap our minds around. So we pray for your help. We pray that you would help us to understand why this news is good news. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In this series, we're looking at a chapter at a time. You're just not able to look at everything in every chapter and dig deep into every single verse. And so, by necessity, each week we kind of end up focusing on one section of verses over the others. But I do want to acknowledge some of the other sections in Hebrews 5. And I just want to begin with a word about that last paragraph we read, Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. It's a rebuke to those who are not interested in doctrine or theology. And I want to tell you a story that maybe helps make sense of what's going on here at the end of 
of Hebrews 5. I want to tell you a story about when Brooke and I were in college. I'll show you a picture. That's us in college. You can see who's changed over the last couple of years. Is not my wife. And uh, that picture was about, uh, about a year before we got engaged, I think, something like that. And so we were in college. Uh, we were both accounting majors, so we ended up taking a lot of classes together. And there's a point in your college career where you need to fill out elective classes, okay? And you guys know, if you've done this, when you see that slot elective on your transcript and you've got to fill it in with something, your mind, if you're a normal person, your mind does not go to, what about calculus four? Or what about, uh, you know, advanced Middle Eastern literature or something crazy like that? What your mind goes to is, I need a good blow-off class. I need something that's going to be really, really easy. I'm not going to have to work at all to fill this spot. So one of the elective classes I had at WT was uh, a psychology class, and the class was called Serial Killers. And it was a class, and we studied serial killers. And I'm just telling you, it was very educational and informative, but it was really easy. We watched a lot of uh, 60 Minutes, 48 Hours, Dateline. We watched these stories of these guys to get the, the history on them, and we would dig into the psychology of some of it. But it was just sort of an easy class. It was an interesting class, a fun class. It wasn't like Calculus 4. So I had that one in my hip pocket. And Brooke and I are dating, and we need to fill in an elective class and so I say, look, I had great luck in the psychology department with serial killers. And when we were in college, <laughs> when we were in college, they actually printed the course offerings on paper. Some of you remember that. Like you actually waited for the paper to come out and you would go to the registrar, registrar's office and you'd get the paper and they'd all be in there. And so we look, we're looking for an easy class, a blow-off class. And this paper... It didn't give you a whole lot of information. It just gave you the course number and the course name and the professor. And there's a class in the psychology department called Drugs and Behavior. Drugs and Behavior. So I see that listing and I say, look, I took serial killers. All we did is watch 48 hours in class and then took a test. It was really easy. Drugs and Behavior, I'm just going to be honest with you, okay? You can think this is terrible or rotten, but I thought... You're going to watch like Cheech and Chong movies and then like you're going to, they're going to say this is drugs and this is how it changes your behavior. That's what I was expecting. Like you're going to just talk about this drug makes you act this way. Drugs and behavior. That's the name of the course. And Brooke says that sounds great to me and uh, sounds like an easy class. So we sign up for this class and we get the textbook and we're like, hmm, is not exactly what we were expecting, and we show up the first day, and the class is actually Introduction to Psychopharmacology, oh, meaning when you take certain prescription drugs, not illicit drugs, what happens in your brain with the molecules and the chemicals, and it was basically like a chemistry class. It was incredibly, incredibly difficult, and somehow we made it through the class and we got a passing grade. But as non-sciencey people, that class was tough. 
Right? The things you had to memorize were challenging, and the concepts and the, the explanation from, from all the reactions going on, if you didn't know what you were doing, you really didn't know what you were doing. It was really, really hard. The course material was challenging. It was difficult. And I just want you to look again at what we read in Hebrews 5.11. It's sort of a break, and the author says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. It's hard to explain. I'm going to be honest with you. When I read through the book of Hebrews, sometimes I come away saying, uh, I don't know what he's talking about. That's kind of confusing. In this verse right here, Hebrews 5.11, it reminds me of what Peter says in one of his letters towards the end. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he says, uh, the things that Paul writes in his letters are difficult to understand. Which I hope that's encouraging to you, that sometimes when you read Paul and he's got these long rambling sentences and you think, Paul, that's one sentence and it's like this long. Peter read those sentences and Peter thought they were hard to understand too. Peter's like, Paul, you got to make it a little bit easier for us. That's hard to track through. It's difficult. And I just want to acknowledge, there are some things in the Bible that you've got to apply your mind to. You have to be a student. You have to actually think and engage your brain. But I also want you to see what the author of Hebrews says in verse 11. He says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, not because it's difficult like psychopharmacology, not because it's necessarily hard to trace the, the flow of an argument through Paul's long sentences. Look what he says. It's difficult to explain. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Literally, the author of Hebrews says, you have lazy ears. Your ears are lazy. And it's hard for us to explain these things to you because you don't want to put the hard work into thinking about doctrine and theology. I just wonder if the author of Hebrews were to walk in the room and we were to sort of have a conversation about this verse and he were to know a thing or two about American culture, if the author of Hebrews would say something like, you know, and... In Odessa, Texas, there's all sorts of people who can tell you all the stats from the big game and the batting average of this guy and the ERA of that guy and the record of this team and the likelihood that this game is going to go that way or this way. What's the over-under? They know all these complicated things about sports. They know nothing about Jesus. They've done the hard work over here, but they haven't done the hard work over here. I wonder if the author of Hebrews would walk into our culture, to our churches in our day and say, you know, there's a lot of people who can give me the rundown of the latest Netflix series. They binge watch the, the latest Netflix series to come out and they can tell you episode one, two, three, four, all the plot line, all the characters, all the drama, all the intrigue, all of it. I mean, they know it backwards and frontwards, but they don't know anything about the storyline of the scripture. I wonder if he would say, man, there's some parents and grandparents who are all about their kids and their grandkids. They can talk for hours and hours and hours about things their kids are doing, things their grandkids are doing. They're so proud about it. They're so excited about it. I mean, they're all in, but they can't talk very long about these things. And I think the author of Hebrews would say to us, some of these things are hard to explain, 
not necessarily because the subject matter is just so difficult, but because you and I are lazy of hearing. And I wonder if the author of Hebrews would walk into a typical American church and say, where are the people who are passionate about the things of God? Where are the people who get as excited about the scriptures as they do the big game or the next Netflix series or whatever it is that really gets you going? These things are hard to explain, he says, because you, and he's thinking about a particular audience, your ears are lazy. My prayer is that we're not that kind of church. I pray that we don't have lazy ears. I pray that we get as excited about these things that require some thought and some effort as we do the big game or the favorite series on Netflix or our kids or our grandkids or whatever it may be. So I just want to throw that out there. At the end of this passage, it's a rebuke to those who say, well, it's just too hard. I'm not interested in it. The author of Hebrews is going to kick back and say, no, you have lazy ears. You have lazy ears. The first part of the the passage we're going to reference, but we're not going to really dig into it. Hebrews 5, 1 to 4 talks about the qualifications for Israel's high priest. It doesn't cover all of the qualifications, but it just sort of gives you a rundown. Chosen from among the people, chosen from this special tribe, somebody who could relate to the people, some of the things that he had to do. All of these things just sort of listed. And our focus is going to be Hebrews 5, 5 to 10, that describes how Jesus is uniquely qualified, right? And it's almost, if you want to picture it like this, Hebrews 5, 5 to 10, it's almost like the author of Hebrews, just imagine out in the margin, he puts a bunch of empty boxes, right? And he's listing out all the qualifications, and he's just going down, checking them off, one after another. And he's saying to you, Jesus meets all the, all the qualifications. He checks all the boxes, He has everything that you would be looking for or everything that you might need in a high priest. And this morning, look, I don't have any great life tips for you. You know, I don't have like five ways to help this be better in your life or here's, you know, some practical steps to change this in your life. All I have is things of God. All I have is this is who Jesus is. And I don't want you to have lazy ears. And I don't want to have lazy ears, and I want to listen to the scriptures, and I want these things to excite us. I want us to hear this news and to hear it as good news, not just as something that's too difficult for me to understand. So here we go. Hebrews 5, how is Jesus uniquely qualified to serve as our high priest? Number one, selection. Jesus was appointed and designated as a high priest. So he he checks the box of selection. Here's the thing. In ancient Israel, men didn't just decide, you know, I'm ready for a career change. I think I'm going to go into the priesthood. Like in our neck of the woods, people do that a lot. People change jobs a lot, right? I'm going to go into the oil field or I'm going to get a different job in the oil field or I want to get out of the oil field or I want to get back into the oil field or People sort of change jobs, and we have freedom to do that. It really didn't work that way in ancient Israel, and certainly no one just said one day, I think I'd like to have a career change and become a priest. There were no guidance counselors at Jerusalem High meeting with the seniors and saying, you know, your vocational test shows that you would make an exceptional high priest. We are suggesting this be your chosen career path? Could we enroll you and get you some information about the seminary there? Nobody was saying that. 
nobody was having elections or votes. Like, let's get together and I'm going to have a campaign. I'm running for high priest like I would run for sheriff. That's not how it worked. And the author of Hebrews points this out in verse 4. He says, no one takes this honor for himself. You don't get to just decide you want to be the high priest. You have to be called by God. And he references Aaron and he says, Aaron. Aaron was called by God to do it. God made the call on his life and Aaron filled that role. He was selected. The same thing is true for Jesus. Look at verse 5. He did not exalt himself to this role, to this position. That sounds a lot like Philippians 2 type language. Verse 5 says he was appointed by God. Verse 10 says he was designated by God. And there's two quotes at the beginning of this little section. One of them is in verse 5 and one of them is in verse 6. The first one comes from Psalm 2. The second one comes from Psalm 110. And both of those quotes, if you go back and read them, they're messianic psalms, Psalms that point you forward to Jesus. And both of these quotes are telling you the high priest to come is going to be a priest king. That's sort of unique in Israel. They separated those offices in ancient ancient Israel. But Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 combining these roles saying there's going to be a priest king. And the author of Hebrews says Jesus checks that box. He was selected by God, designated by God. For this role. So, so far so good. Secondly, succession. This one gets a little more dicey. Author of Hebrews says Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why do I say it's dicey? Well, look at verse 4. It says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron, Moses' brother, a Levite, the very first high priest in Israel. And following Aaron, all of the high priests came from his line. They had to be Levites. That was the line of succession, so to speak. And the author of Hebrews is acknowledging Jesus is not from that line. He's not a descendant of Aaron or Levi. He's a descendant of Judah. Right? The people who came from Judah, David, those were the kings. The people who came from Levi, those were the priests. And he's sort of acknowledging this, and then he brings up Melchizedek, and he says, Jesus came from Melchizedek. Now look, some of this you say, you have lost me already. Like Levi, Judah, this line of succession, I, I, I don't know. Look, part of the problem we have when we think about this succession stuff is that we're Americans, and we don't really do succession very well. We don't really think in terms of royal family like our friends across the pond think in terms of royal family. So you've seen this sort of picture lately, royal family in England, they have a new baby and so you got the prince there in the back and you got his wife who's an American and they have this baby, baby Archie and the people in Britain are all excited about the, the update to the line of succession and so you can find stuff like this that says, when the queen's gone, who's next? Who's in line? And it's very clear. And it's very laid out. There's no one in the UK who's not part of the royal family campaigning to get in here. That's not how they do it. You've got to be from this line. And there's baby Archie, number seven. He's got a lot of people in front of him. But hey, seven is better than where you and I stand. So line of succession stuff. We don't really do this much 
right? I, I tried to think this week, what's the closest Americans get to this sort of line of succession? And I think the closest we get is like the list that comes after the President of the United States if something happened to the President of the United States, right? If something happens to the President, we go to the VP, then we go to the Speaker of the House, then you go to the longest serving senator, then the Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of Defense. You can Google this. There's like 30 people on the list. I mean, it goes on and on and on. We have a backup plan. If the president is not able to serve, here's who we go to next. That's as close as we get to this idea of succession. But this is a big deal for the Jewish people. Because the author of Hebrews is trying to make an argument. Jesus is not just a high priest. He's the great high priest. And every Jew who had ever read the Old Testament would immediately pipe up and say, not possible. Not from the right line of succession. The priesthood comes through Aaron. It comes through the Levites. It cannot come to someone who's part of Judah's line. And so the author of Hebrews anticipates that argument. And he appeals to an older priesthood. One older than Aaron, older than the Levites. He appeals to Melchizedek. And I promise you, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about Melchizedek. And this is what I need you to understand for Hebrews 5. The author is saying, yes, even though he's not from the quote-unquote right tribe, he checks this box. He is fit to serve as the true high priest. It's not as if God has just called an audible and changed the plan last minute. This was part of the plan all along. No, he's not from the line of succession of Aaron and the Levites. He is of the line of succession of Melchizedek, and we're going to come back to him. Box number three, solidarity. Solidarity. The author of Hebrews wants to remind us again that Jesus was fully and truly human. Now look, this is one of those things that is kind of rough to, to try to wrap your mind around. The first couple of chapters of Hebrews, especially Hebrews 1, is very clear that Jesus is God. Fully God, truly God, really God, not God B, not God like 1A, but God, the creator in the beginning. But then the author of Hebrews turns around and he makes sure that we understand God took on flesh. God took on humanity. And he explained it back in chapter 2, verse 14. He said, the children share in flesh and blood, so Jesus partook of the same things, flesh and blood. Why? So that through death he could destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. God became man without ceasing to be God. And that's impossible to wrap your minds all the way around, but it's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. And this is why it matters. Look at Hebrews 5 verse 3. It says he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Right? This high priest had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And as he's doing that, as he's sacrificing for his sins, he's sacrificing for the people. Verse 2 says he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward because he is beset with weakness. Aaron understood what it was like to be tempted. He knew. Aaron understood what it was like to give in to temptation. And when the people would come to him, he could relate to them, person to person, human to human. And the author of Hebrews wants you to understand there is solidarity with Jesus, the great high priest. 
He's not an angelic savior. You remember that argument in chapter 1? He's not an angel. He's greater than the angels. You don't have an angel who saved you. You have a man. Remember what we just read from Paul's letter to Timothy? Right? The one mediator between God and men is the man, Christ Jesus. He stands shoulder to shoulder with us. He literally walks a mile in our shoes. And as a human, he can offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. There's solidarity. He checks that box. Fourthly, sympathy. Author of Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus suffered as a human, so he understands suffering. Look at verse 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers, supplications, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You know, most commentators look at those verses and they, they read about cries and tears and supplications and prayers and suffering. And most commentators agree that this is an allusion to the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know if that's where your mind went, but I think that's the background here where Jesus is on his face and he's crying out in the garden, right? Talking to the Father, sweating drops of blood, suffering for his people, knowing the great suffering that will come in just a few hours. He has suffered. The one that you trust in for salvation knows what it's like to suffer. He's experienced it. He's lived it. He's felt it. I just want you to look at one phrase in verse 7. It says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Look at this phrase. To him who was able to save him from death. Jesus prayed to the Father who was able to save him from death. When you hear that phrase, I don't know where your mind goes. My mind this week, as I thought about the one who's able to save him from death, my mind went to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those guys? Old Testament, Book of Daniel. They're standing there in exile. And King Nebuchadnezzar builds this golden statue and he tells everyone to bow down to it and they won't do it. They refuse and eventually they're brought before the king himself. And the king demands that they bow down to it and he threatens them, if you don't bow down to this statue, I'm going to burn you alive. And this is what we read in Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Jesus, Hebrews 5, he prayed to the one who was able to save him from death. God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And you remember the rest of the story, most of you. They were saved. They were thrown into the fire, but they were kept alive. They weren't burned. Their clothes didn't smell like smoke. They were brought out safely. God was able to save them. What about Jesus? Author of Hebrews says, he is crying out with tears 
to the one who is able to save him from death. Did he? Yes and no, right? No, he had to drink the cup. The cup of God's wrath would not pass. He had to drink it, and he drank all of it. And he tasted death for his people. God was able to save him from it, but he didn't. And Jesus died. He died our death. But you and I know the rest of the story, and three days later, God saved him. He raised him from the dead. He brought Jesus back to life victorious. This stamp of approval saying, your death accomplished what you set out to accomplish. And I want you to catch the end of verse 7. It says, he was heard because of his reverence. When you look at the life of Jesus and you say he prayed, he cried out to the one who was able to save him from death, you may walk away saying, it doesn't look like God saved him from that death. Did God hear that prayer? Did he hear those cries? And the author of Hebrews assures you, he heard them. He heard them. I don't want to put you or place you in the the spot of Jesus, but I do want you to understand there's times in your lives where you cry out to God, you call out to God with tears and supplications, and you wonder, did he hear me? Is he hearing me? Does he know? Is he going to come through? Did the prayer just bounce off the ceiling and come right back down? Did he hear me? And the book of Hebrews is telling us, even when the cup doesn't pass, even when the suffering doesn't immediately go away, even when you taste more suffering, even when you're thrown into the fire, God hears those prayers. And he is able to deliver you. That deliverance may come in the short run, like it did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or it may come in the long run, like it did for Jesus of Nazareth. But it will come. He hears those prayers. So Jesus checks this box of sympathy. He knows what it's like to suffer. Number five, sinlessness. Sinlessness. Jesus learned obedience and he was made perfect. He learned obedience and he was made perfect. There's an interesting allusion in Hebrews 5.3 where it says he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people and The argument goes like this, look, the high priest in Israel could relate to the people because he was human, but he also had a problem. The problem is he was human. He was a sinner. And before he could offer sacrifices for anyone in the nation, he had to deal with his own sins. And so your mind goes to the day of atonement, where before the priest would confess the sins of the nation, he would confess his own sins. And he would offer a blood sacrifice for his own sins so that he was in right standing, right relationship with God. And the author of Hebrews is telling us Jesus is able to be our great high priest and the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world because he was without sin. He was sinless. Look at the end of chapter 4, verse 15. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Never. In action, in word, in thought, in emotion. Never transgress the law of God. Completely 
without sin. Just like those animals in the Old Testament. Those animals that were brought had to be perfect. They couldn't be the three-legged lamb. It couldn't be the blind goat. You had to bring the best of the best. It had to be spotless. Why? Because those sacrifices were telling you something about the Messiah, about the Christ. He was sinless. He was pure. He was whole. He was perfect. He was without sin. And he checks that box where Aaron and all the other high priests fell short. He was completely and totally without sin. You look at uh, verse 8 and verse 9 and you say, well, what about verse 8? He learned obedience. What about verse 9? Right? He was made perfect. But don't those passages suggest that at one point he wasn't obedient and at one point he wasn't perfect? No. Those verses suggest that there are some things that are only learned and experienced in real life. They've got to be tested and proved and tried. It's one thing to talk about them in the abstract. It's another thing to live them out. And you know this is true. There's things in your life that you can have an academic knowledge of, but until you live it, you don't really know it. There's things in your life that you know can be true, but until you go through suffering, you don't really know it. And the author of Hebrews is saying he went through the fire, he went through the temptation, he was tested, he was tried, he was proved, he was obedient, he was perfect. It was real. It's not just abstract theology. It's not just sort of up in the cloud, pie in the sky doctrine that we're talking about. This is earthy stuff. He lived it. And because he lived it, he could die our death. So sinlessness, he checks that box. Last box, salvation. Can the high priest save? The author of Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. That's straight out of verse 9. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. If you study history much, you know that throughout history, human beings have looked for some sort of fountain of youth some sort of pool or waterfall or pond or something, spring of water that if you dip in it or you drink from it, you can just live forever. It just turns back death. On the left, you see Herodotus. He was a Greek historian. Herodotus, uh, in his writings, talks about a group of people he calls the Macrobian people. And he says, these Macrobian people, we don't know where they lived, we don't know who he thought they were, but he says the Macrobians have the fountain of youth, they drink from it, they live well past 120 years. Ancient sources talking about the fountain of youth. In the middle, you see Alexander the Great. You read about the, the conquests of Alexander. We read about his search in various places, especially in the east in India, looking for some fountain of youth, something that he could partake of that would let him live forever. You read on the, on the right about Juan Ponce de Leon, right? The conquistador who discovered Florida. And some people look at his life and they say, no, he didn't believe in it. And others look at it and say, absolutely, he was looking for the fountain of youth. He was looking for this source of life. And the author of Hebrews just sort of sweeps all those silly quests aside and says, there is a source of life. There is a source of salvation. You're not going to find it in India. You're not going to find it with the microbian people. You're not going to find it in Florida. You find it in Jesus. Hebrews 5.9. Being made perfect, he became the source 
of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Does that sound right to you? I'm just curious. The last part where it says obey, is that sort of what you would expect or would you expect him to end it differently? Be honest, church-going people. You expect him to say, Jesus is a source of eternal salvation for everyone who invites him into their heart. Praise the prayer. Or maybe if you're a little beyond that, maybe you say, Jesus, the source of eternal salvation for all who believe the gospel, all who have faith, saved by faith alone. We studied that a few, few years ago. So we talked about the Reformation, the anniversary of the Reformation, sola fide. We're saved by faith alone, not by our works. And yet the author of Hebrews says very clearly, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Why does he say it that way? Why didn't he tell you to pray the sinner's prayer or turn from your sins and trust in Jesus or believe the gospel? Why does he put it this way? I think the answer comes later in the book of Hebrews, and I think the answer comes when you read the rest of the New Testament. I think it's clear when you read through the New Testament that faith and obedience are never separated. They cannot be separated. They are distinguished. They are distinct things so that we can talk about faith as one thing and we can talk about obedience and, and repentance as another thing, but they are never things that are separated as if you could have one without the other. They are always things that go together. And so when Jesus, Mark chapter 1, began preaching, he began preaching, repent and believe. The kingdom has come. Repent and believe. They go together. When you read the, the letters that Paul wrote, especially to the church in Rome, Paul talked about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. In Paul's mind, those two things go together. They're distinct, but they're not separate. You can't separate them. Sunday mornings a few years ago, we went through the book of James. James talks about it as faith without works is dead. It's not real faith. Right? If, if you have faith, but you take the works away, it's no longer faith. And James know that, knows that faith is one thing and works is another thing, but he also knows you can't separate those things without changing either of them. In the book of Hebrews, we're going to come to chapter 11. We're going to read about this great list of heroes and their faith. And one of the things we're going to learn or we're going to read in Hebrews 11.8 is that Abraham obeyed by faith. They're connected. Those two things are connected. And so the author of Hebrews doesn't blush. He's not a Pharisee. You understand this? He's not telling you you earn your salvation, you work for your salvation, you deserve your salvation. But he also doesn't blush and he just says it like this. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And that's the appeal this morning. That's the challenge to you and me. Right? The author of Hebrews has put these six boxes up. And he's just checked them off one after another. And he said, selection, Jesus meets that criteria. Succession, solidarity, sympathy, sinlessness, salvation, Jesus checks all the boxes. He is the great high priest. He's the one who died, who gave his life as a sacrifice for yours. And there's a source of salvation for you. Will you believe him? Will you put your faith in him? Will you obey him? Will you follow him? That's the challenge. I want to pray for you.